So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. We are back. More foxhole, more zeitgeist, more life hack, more songs, more manbassadors, the whole caboodle. And thank you very much to each and every one of you who supported us to make this season happen. Uh, hello to Manfan Tim from New Zealand, who's written in to say, Ollie, I found your podcast whilst I was in the US seeing a girl there. Thank God I did. All the other podcasts I tried seem so bland and one-dimensional. Yeah, America. They don't have any podcasts. Uh, Tim continues. Uh, I just wanted to say, your show is bloody chipper and a good laugh. I think that probably sounds better in a Kiwi accent. Um, The blend of banter, storytelling and sex education is a quality mix, says Tim. I especially liked the episode Lost at Sea about the poor South African surfer getting the shits and falling overboard. That is probably not, Tim, how I would describe that episode. But but yes, amongst the existential questions on the meaning of life, uh, he did get the shits in that story. That is true. Um, I think, Tim, you are going to enjoy today's interview. It's another astonishing life story. Uh, it's about a man who, if you Google him, is often called Britain's biggest rogue trader. The man who almost brought down Switzerland's biggest bank and lost them over $2 billion. But, um, well, he doesn't see it exactly like that, uh, as you will discover. I think he, he gives me a, a really interesting interview about it, and the banking crash, and the broken systems in capitalism, and nationhood. It's it's a pretty strong interview. Uh, before we get going, though, big thanks to our sponsors this week, Harry's. Uh, they're a shaving company. They make German-engineered razors. In some ways, I am the wrong man to endorse them because I've never used a razor in my life. I was 13 when my dad uh, bought me an electric shaver, and I've never looked back. So Harry's have sent me a razor to try, but A, I wouldn't be able to fairly compare it to its competitors, and B, just because I'm a novice, I'm a bit worried I might cut myself. Uh, But I can reliably inform you the packaging looks incredible. (laughs) And the razor too. It's a really simple design, but it feels very tactile and high quality in your hands. Their grooming products smell amazing as well. Uh, But like I said, I haven't used it. So I'm going to get my father-in-law to give it a go. He is a regular razor user. um, So I will get my father-in-law to report back for us next week. Uh, However, if you do use razors, then why not take out the special offer? Harrys.com slash man is where you need to go to get a trial set for only $3.95. That's a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover delivered to your door. Harrys.com slash M-A-N-N. And, you know, if enough of you take out the trial, then hopefully they'll support the show 
in the future again. So if you want to support us and get a shaving set worth £11.50 for just three ninety-five, harrys.com slash man with two N's. Uh, and thanks again to them. Right, on today's show, you will learn what it feels like to be at the centre of a major news story. You'll learn how to network without looking like a creep. And you'll learn what intercrural intercourse is and how to have it. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Actually, what I wrote in the email was, I take full responsibility for the shitstorm that's about to ensue. Banking, gambling, and serving time. Taking responsibility for a financial meltdown. Seven in ten prefer to make love in pitch darkness. And Alex Fox shed some light on alternative techniques for the bedroom. But first, it's time for the Zeitgeist, your insider guide to the trends that matter, with a man who has 54 unread text messages on his phone. It's Ollie Pierce. <laughs> when, when have you been looking at my I've phone? I've just, just been looking. 54. Also, who why, has that? I just don't pay attention to notifications, Ollie. It's simple. Have you got any notifications that irritate you on a daily basis, but you haven't found time to turn off yet? Oh, yeah. I've recently become part of Slack. I love a Slack notification. Not when there's 15. Ping, 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 ping. Oh, they don't even make that noise. What's the noise for Slack? It's like... The one that annoys me is Spock. I once went on Spock to sell my dining table. Yeah. And it wasn't clear how it was going to let me know if someone was making an offer. And I'd never used the app before. So I turned on notifications thinking it would let me know if someone made an offer on my dining table. Yeah. And instead, it lets me know anytime someone in Britain posts a picture of a dining table. <laughs> so it's like every day, ping, good news, a dining table's for sale in Kent. Serious problems. Uh, right, uh, what are your big trends for the week ahead? Blind. Tell me more. Blind is an app where you remain completely anonymous. Hence and blind. What you do is you can use it to talk about the company that you work for with a level of... So you can be anonymous. You can be anonymous, and you can talk about the company that you work for. So if you work for Google or Facebook or any company for that matter, let's pick an obscure one. Yeah, let's pick a less cool company than Google. Ivoco that make the buses. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You work for Robert Dias. Yeah, or or Rent a Kill. Yeah, you can go. Oh, I'm really annoyed that they've introduced this new rat poison, and do you know what? It really hurts my fingers. And then your mates can go. Oh yeah, it does, doesn't it? We should have a word with the but it's a level it, you know you, you're not giving your name so you can whinge about what's the point well on a much higher level you can have discussions about pay and working conditions see that's quite interesting because a lot of like fast food companies don't have unions do they they will not allow that mm-hmm. and so this is a way i suppose of circumnavigating all that isn't it without anyone being able to trace you and uh, in south korea they're using blind to talk about uh, sexual harassment in the workplace um, and they have a section which is uh, for the me too movement and that's important in south korea because their corporate working culture is such that people feel like they can't speak up if there's something wrong and it's because the companies they're privately owned companies are typically run by uh, families so if you were to speak up about something or a problem there's a fear i'm not saying it's a legitimate one but there is a fear that uh, you'd basically get the boot and this has given them a platform an outlet to say this happened to me at this place and then other women will share their stories as well. And within 24 hours, they had 500 posts, the app crashed. And so I think it's a really good case for anonymity online. If I was a boss, though, yes, I'd consider going on blind and then saying, what do you think of that Ollie man? He's a bit weird, isn't he? He stood near me the other day and he made me feel physically sick with his presence. 
and see what people really thought about me, at which point I'd be able to work out who they were and then fire them. Yeah, you're you could weird. do that, you, couldn't you? I mean, I suppose bosses of big companies are quite sadistic. Yeah, I mean, Maybe, fortunately, yeah. I'm not the boss of a big company, but I could do that. But I, I do. don't think that's a bad idea. Because what if, say you were like Elon Musk, right? And yeah. you went, oh, Elon Musk's an idiot sending a car into space. And then you could just, and then people sort of fell back and go, actually, yeah, I think it was really irresponsible. It was really silly. What a complete waste of time, complete waste yeah. of money. And then he might go, oh my God, actually, I'm my people that I work with, my yes men, yeah. they just keep saying, I said put a car in space. And they were like, yeah, great idea, Elon, go and do it. And actually what they really think is that that was a silly idea. We should have sent something else into space. Okay, what other trends do you have for us this week? Baby sculptors. <laughs> so Kylie Jenner, she has posted a picture because she had a baby a couple of weeks ago of her baby holding her thumb, right, like this. Uh, I'm the, showing, the baby I'm, holding the mum's thumb? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So like, uh, oh, she's got my thumb, so her hands are really small and stuff. I see, yeah. Uh, <laughs> side note, this image is broken Instagram records. But anyway, a nail artist in Russia has decided that uh, they should replicate this image in nail art, in 3D. I'm going to show you a video of it being created. Have a watch. So it looks like a little um, plastic figurine of a baby's hand is holding on to a little smaller plastic figurine of a finger with a nail on it within a lady's nail. Yeah, and if you can't picture that... Quite hard to picture that. Definitely Google it. It's a bit like, you know when the alien bursts out of John Hurt's stomach? Yeah. It's like a little fingernail bursting out of a real fingernail with some more fingernails around it. Anyway, it got me thinking about other people that sculpt babies after they've been born. And these sculptures are in cake. What do you mean they're in cake? They're made out of cake. Are you telling me you've been on the internet and found lots of examples of pictures of cakes people have baked that are in the shapes of ladies' vaginas with babies coming out of them? Is that what you're telling me? Here's number one. Oh my god! It looks like an aborted fetus. It it does, and, and it's that, blue. That one's horrible. I I almost passed out on that one when I first saw it. But uh, is the next one? Ah! <laughs> is that a cesarean? It's a cesarean baby, isn't it? It's like Hellraiser coming out of a lady's tummy. What amazes me is the incredible use of fruit and other ingredients. Hey, listen, it's a Bake Off showstopper. There's no two ways about it. But it's also disgusting. Have you seen number three? Ooh, that yeah. one looks like a baby being cut open. And number four. <laughs> the thing is, like, when I looked at this, I don't have kids. And I've always thought, okay, well, I want to go along to the birth. Mm. If it's anything, I'm not going along to the birth ever. Okay. I, I like pineapple chunks. Yeah, no. okay. So that. Whoa! <laughs> Just got to number five. Okay. So whoever baked this cake has taken a baby's doll's head and then surrounded it with, I suppose, raspberries, but made it look like the baby is emerging from a blooded vagina. So in a very can you imagine? Shredded so chocolate could... to represent pubic hair, I think. Hey, Judith, I've just um, come over to say congratulations. <laughs> um, I've made you a cake. Oh, that's lovely. Let me... Ah! <laughs> it's not the most obvious audio content, but thank you for presenting it with me. I um, just thought there's been quite a few like uh, amazing things circling the internet, and I just thought I wanted to show you that. Oh, those are mostly God. from... Are they mostly from Cake Rex, those? CakeRex.com. Uh, okay, but if you, I'll tell you, if you want to see the full horrifying gallery, we'll, we'll put it up on, on our website, modernman.co.uk. Okay, well, uh, I feel physically sick, so I'm going to move on to uh, talk about your challenge. Yes. Uh, at the end of the last series, you left us hanging as a cliffhanger. I'm sure most people have spent pretty much all of January just on the edge of their seats, unable to walk, unable to move. 
wanting to know how your adventure into what was it called again neural priming neural priming went yes so this yeah. was a gadget you were going to plug into your head and see if it made you smarter almost basically uh, uh, the product was uh, is called halo it's, mm. it's by a company called halo and it's basically a pair of headphones and they work like normal headphones you can listen to your music through them they've got these pads in the top which you soak under the tap and you have to get them completely soaking wet and they're like uh, they're spiky pads spiky rubber pads oh god right before I used these, I actually had to speak to someone at Halo. Yeah, I yeah. spoke to a guy called Brett, and he talked me through the process. And mm-hmm. it was quite long, so he goes, right, go and run those under your tap and get them soaking wet, wetter than you think they should be. So anyways, I did that, got them soaking wet, put them back in the thing, goes, right, now pop them on your head. Mm-hmm. Did that, started dripping down, really weird. And there's an app that's attached to them. So they link to the headphones via Bluetooth through this app. And the app is what you use to control the intensity of the current that goes through the headphones to prime your neurals. Okay, but are you supposed to be listening to what, like a self-help audiobook at the same time? No, you don't have Just to music. listen. Don't have to listen to anything. So, I was chatting to him, and he goes, "Right, what you want to do? Uh, the app will now, if if you press this test button, it will now fire up. And what it's going to do is it's going to take the setting up to the full maximum setting." Were you a bit scared at this point? Yeah, yeah. I was actually really anxious at yeah. this stage. But you've been speaking to the guy who's been part of the development team. Did he put you at ease? He was trying to. What did he say? Well, he basically said, you're, "What you'll feel is a slight tingling sensation." <laughs> right? <laughs> that now, when, no, but when somebody says that, right? If I said to you, "You're going to feel a slight tingling sensation," yeah. I'd, you'd think maybe like pins and needles or something like that yeah i was like yeah okay fine it felt like and i'm not kidding it felt like someone was burning my head and then at first it started on the top of my head and then it kind of went under my skull like it was such a horrible feeling and i was borderline having a panic attack when you say say burning your head yeah like did it feel hot yeah so if you put your fingers under the headband was it hot no okay so it's just in your brain yeah you felt so heat. I, uh, yeah, and I was like... That's not I was a good get, feeling. No, and I could feel myself like I was getting really worried. And I was like, is this normal? Should I feel like this? Should yeah. I... You, should be. And I think he could see the worry in my face. Like It I was, was a video gen- call. Yeah, it was a video call. Right. Genuinely concerned, like really worried about what it was doing to me. And then it got more intense. Uh. It got more intense and it kept going, it kept going, it kept going. But that was a two-minute test, yeah. right? You're supposed to do it, he said, for 20 minutes. But you do it you do it incrementally, so you start on a really low setting. But after that, I actually was so like worried and like I basically after the call I had a borderline panic attack. Over subsequent days I'd stumble over a word and I'd be like, it's those brain <laughs> headphones. <laughs> They're making me forget stuff. Okay. And every any time I forgot anything, I'd just be like, It's the brain headphones. They're making mm. me f- I can't even remember what they're called. I'm guessing then that that's where the story ends. Forgive me. I was not going to use them every day. No, I do that. forgive you for this. You gave it a go. You were worried your brain was going to implode. I think that's a reasonable time. That's a common sense time to depart. However, in my understanding, they haven't asked for the product back. It's it's yours now. And it sounds like you're not going to use it again unless you want to open a get out style basement in your house so therefore i think maybe what we could do is say to listeners you know if you want to get in touch and try it out if you're not put off by ollie's brain frying experience maybe you could see whether it improves your skills because this thing's worth like it's 500 dollars or something isn't it yeah yeah, and they're welcome to them they're like if anybody's seen the the last episode in the latest series of black mirror it is like that museum they're sat in my <laughs> house staring at me with horror stories behind them okay it's time to set you another trendsetter challenge for this week uh it's from man fan ben who says, uh, following Ollie's previous challenges to live an ethical lifestyle. Oh, okay, yeah. Ollie, we would like you to go plastic-free for a week. Oh! Plastic-free. How oh. do you stand on that? Oh, I, I, I'm, very, I, I'm very pleased with that challenge. 
my partner will be delighted. She's always trying to make us reduce plastic. Yeah, but uh, that means she can't use any shampoo or shower gel for the next week. Okay, well, let's get some clarification on this. Yeah, it's easy to clarify. Nothing in plastic. No, no, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, wait you can't wait, have a yogurt. I've already bought. What if I've already bought some the shower matter, gel? It's in plastic. So what I've got to do, bin it, waste of plastic. Obviously, long term, the sensible thing to be if you decided to make a long term change in your life to use up the product and then start from scratch. I was going to say, but you, so you want me to go out tomorrow and buy glass bottled? Yes. Okay. Or just soap, not in plastic. Nothing in plastic. That's what plastic okay, free no, means. Okay, no, no, I'm fine. I'm game. I'm game. I can do this. Okay. All right. I look forward to finding out how it goes. Okay. Until next week. Goodbye. Hello, man fans. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle, a freelance writer and deputy editor of Kinfolk magazine, and these are my life hacks on how to network. My first tip is to stop thinking about networking as this sleazy, slightly underhand practice. Not to slap us all down on some Freudian couch, but I really do think this comes from our childhood, because the first examples we see of networks in action are incredibly unfair ones. It's the kid whose parents could get him great work experience while you're stuck doing something shit and mundane, admin in a caravan park in my case. But if you're an adult and you're using channels to network that are generally accessible, there's no need to feel like it's some slimy way of doing things. My second tip is that you need to remember that networking is not, and I'm not sure it ever has been, about fist pumping your way around the room. I'm like a rabbit in headlights in those situations, and even the people who I think of as supremely good networkers feel the same way. I think the more important thing to work on is converting those people who you kind of know into meaningful contacts. So if you have a water cooler conversation with someone senior to you, and they mention saving the bees or whatever, something that interests you also, send them an email afterwards with an article you read on it. Show that you're engaged and interested in them, as a person. It's basically about laying the groundwork, because I think if you're trying to explicitly network with someone and you already know exactly what you want to get out of it, you started too late and you're going to look like a leech. But what about if they're complete strangers? This is the third point. I think it's almost easier. In the last year, I've sent out maybe a half dozen emails to people who I really admire in my field, telling them why I think they're great and asking to go for coffee. I've never actually got a no. I think I would if I was emailing CEOs, but the point is that most of us mortals have this itching sense that we're not doing well enough. So it's really validating to sit down and talk to someone who admires you. Try not to come in with specific demands and be careful about how you word your flattering emails. I once went for coffee with a producer who definitely thought we were on a date. If you would like more tips, follow my podcast, Friends Who Freelance, that's FWF underscore podcast on Twitter. We're launching this month and we'll be full of tips about how to work better. Now, you probably don't know the name Kweku Adeboli, unless you work in a bank or in finance, in which case his story will have been drummed into you as a warning from recent history. Kweku was born in Ghana, but his dad, a UN official, was posted around the world, so he grew up in Jerusalem and then Damascus, and basically he never lived in Ghana. At 12, he came here to Britain to attend a boarding school in Yorkshire, and after a few years struggling to be accepted, he seemingly became 
the model pupil. He was even head boy. After that, he never thought of leaving Britain to study or to work. He went to Nottingham University to study computer science and management. And it wasn't until he attended a so-called milk round event, they're kind of like top-end job fairs for students, that he ever even considered a career in banking. I knew nothing about investment banking. I knew what Goldman Sachs was, but not Deutsche Bank, UBS, all these, whatever. So I went along and because I was doing computer science and management, it was a IT guy, tech guy who came up to me and my mate AJ. And so we started talking to him and he you know, he started to brag about the fact that he'd just done a 50-hour weekend. I remember walking away with AJ going, God, this guy's a douche, man. Like, <laughs> I'm never going to work for you. Like, I'd never work. For, like, why the fuck would we work for UBS? And then it got to February of 2002. And we were applying for internships for that summer. And I'd applied to all of the technology consultants and all the strategy consultants, but it was at the back end of the dot-com bust. So no, everyone canceled their intern programs. Who was left? So I was like, oh, well, just apply to the banks and see what happens. UBS was the first one I applied to. They gave me this amazing project where I had to build this tool that would calculate the total value of UBS's assets under management globally because they didn't have an automated way of doing it. So it was a proof of concept. I would build this tool, pump all the different bits of data in, and then spit out a number. It was really hard. But to achieve it, I had to speak to senior people all over the world, traders, operations. Like I got a sense for the whole institution. And when we hit play and it gave the number and the number was really close, $1.3 trillion at the time, everyone was like, wow, like this is really great. Thank you so much for doing this. And that felt like a real achievement. And at the end of the internship, after 10 weeks of being told, you know, you belong to a family and we've got a common purpose and um, we're all sort of pulling in the same direction, trying to achieve a common goal. So it was like, okay, actually, maybe banking isn't just about making money. It's about doing something for our society. So I went back to university for a year. I, I, they, they sent me back as the campus ambassador, right? So <laughs> I went back, evangelized for UBS, like, like one of the converted convincing everyone else to apply to UBS and then my first job was in settlements after 10 months they sent me to Stockholm after a year and a half they sent me to Hong Kong so then one of the traders on another team that I supported came to me and said I need a junior trader will you come and join me When it got crazy, like when, and I mean crazy, like screaming and shouting for 20 minutes, people screaming across the trading floor. So if you can imagine the trading floor, sort of this atrium above the third floor, all the way to the ceiling with a skylight and all the other floors look down onto the third floor. So you're basically like in a pit and we were like right in the middle of the trading floor. There's all these people looking down upon us. There's like hundred million dollar orders getting screamed across the trading floor. People like really angry or like 
really elated like the emotion level was crazy and our desk because it was a 50 billion dollar book with 4,000 instruments on it. It was highly complex. It was challenging to manage. It was the biggest book in the bank, right? And there were, you know, at various points, there were two traders or three traders or four traders on the book, which was nowhere near enough people, actually. We once did a test to see how often you had to react to something. And we figured out that there was a request for response of some kind either someone coming to your desk or a message coming via the trading system or someone asking you a question every 40 seconds from like 6.30 in the morning until 4.30 at night. You know, there were some days where I slept under my desk because the project I was working on required me to just work through the night. So I'd sleep under the, and the cleaners would come around at five o'clock hooring around your feet. You're not allowed to sleep you know, under your desk and like, well, what am I supposed to do? I've got to get this done. Get back up, five o'clock in the morning, back to work. Do you remember the first time you did something illegal? To answer that question, I've got to tell you a story. In 2007, just as queues were forming outside Northern Rock, my boss, who'd built the book pretty much from scratch, left the bank. And he left the bank because he'd been offered three times his salary and bonus guaranteed to move to another bank to manage a book that was a thousandth of the risk of our book. Guaranteed bonus for two years at three times what he'd been paid at UBS. It was a no-brainer, especially because I'm sure he knew that you know, we were sitting on this potential black hole of a book. And the bank had a choice, um, replace him with someone of equal stature and skill, but then they would have had to pay 10 times what they were paying him to replace him because whoever they were bringing in would know that they were coming in to run this book at the most high-risk time in the history of markets. And so the bank decided to just let me and the guy who would become my supervisor run the book. He had 20 months experience. I had 10 months experience of running this book. So between us, with 30 months experience, we were running a $50 billion book, which is ultimately the same size of, as the GDP of Ghana, right? Two kids. I was 27. He was 25. Now, we've got a bunch of accounting practices that go with the way we run the book. It's important that, you know, you don't make massive profits that you don't understand. And you don't make massive losses that you don't understand, right? So whenever something happened that you didn't understand, what you would do is you'd call your accountant and you'd say, can you please suspend this profit? And I'm going to go away and figure it out. And then I'll come back and you can do something about it. So whilst you're investigating, you go to your boss and you say, so we've had this PL outage don't really understand where it's come from. We're trying to figure it out. Once we do, we'll let you know. And then we find the problem. And you'd go back to your boss and you'd say, so we understand what's happened. To fix it, we need to do X, Y, Z. And we don't have the ability to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. We need more people in research or whatever. We need to spend time on the system, building the book, whatever. And your bosses would say to you, well, you guys are supposed to be the experts in this. You need to find a way to fix it. Eventually, what happens is you stop going to your boss because every time you go to your boss, they just fuck you off and say, you figure out a solution, right? Um, so eventually you're like, oh, okay, so my job is to find a solution. 
So what we figured out was that the book was actually costing the bank something like $40 million a year because it was so big, it, it became so expensive to borrow money to fund it, etc. that we realized that if we didn't take some action or another, we would basically just lose money all the time for the bank. And so what we did was we created this thing called the umbrella. And the umbrella was a real fund of real profits, real money that we just left in suspension. Everyone around us knew about it. Our accountants could see it. It was sat there. It was a cash trade. It was like $40 million of withheld profits. And then whenever something happened, went wrong in the book, we would release some of that profit. And then whenever we made more money than we expected, we would put it back into the umbrella. The idea is just don't deplete the umbrella. You know, it's always there for you as protection on a rainy day. And that, it turns out, is illegal. Correct. But you so, didn't know that at the time. At the time, no, because we had this daily process of suspensions all the time. And this was just an evolution of that process. And you hadn't got authority on it. You just thought, well, that's the sensible way well, to solve this That's a sensible issue. solution, right? In your normal life, what you have is a, a savings account, right? And so in your savings account, whenever something unexpected happens, your car breaks down, you know? You go into your savings account, take some money out, fix the car. And then as soon as you get like a bit of excess somewhere, you put it back in your savings account. It's exactly like that. It felt normal and natural because we weren't taking any money out of the system and we were suppressing our performance, if that makes sense. We were actually, we could at any point just dump the umbrella into the account and bump up our profits, which would make us look really good. But because we weren't doing that, we were just doing it to offset these costs that we would keep taking to our managers and they'd keep sending us away saying, fix it, fix it. We thought, well, we'll just do our jobs and make sure we don't lose money. And we use the umbrella to do that. So because we didn't feel like we were benefiting from doing that, it didn't feel like we were doing anything wrong. We go from being junior kids that know nothing to being sort of junior senior traders with all this responsibility and the respect and the um, kudos that goes with it and so what then happens is that uh, we get a new ceo and the new ceo says i want you guys to take more risk okay and then we go and recruit a bunch of guys to come in to replicate the deutsche bank model at ubs for our product they were more aggressive they were more like go-getters they wanted us to go from making 150 million dollars a year to 900 million dollars a year but to do that, you have to take more risk. Now, the interesting thing about UBS is that there are multiple cultures within the bank. Some areas are really risk averse. Some areas are really risk loving. And we were placed in the risk loving area and being pushed to take more and more risk. But our senior managers knew that if everybody knew how much risk we were taking, the business would get shut down. So they would actually actively come to us. You know, if you make $10 million of profit in a day, because they've told you to take more risk, and you report that $10 million, someone will go, hang on, how did you make $10 million if the market only moved 1%? You had to have had a billion-dollar position on. If anybody asks, these are your risk limits, $100 million a year. But we understand that you need to take more risk to achieve the goals that we're setting you. And you must have realized then that your job would be on the line if that risk fell through. Correct. And so, that, as you saw it, was the penalty. There was no question of criminal the, behavior. Yeah, so like you, you don't make the $900 million profit. You say you only make $400 million. 
either they'll go and get someone else to take that risk and generate those profits or you get fired and if you lose money you lose 100 million lose 200 million lose 500 million you lose your job okay well whatever you lose your job how bad did it get how much did you lose on a bad day on a normal moving market day the worst is a five million dollar day but the problem is that when the market moves in one direction non-stop in the way that it did that summer i mean you're not ready for it and you follow it down thinking it's going to bounce back up and it never does it just keeps going then you basically chase it down and which is what we did because we lost rationality and we lost the ability to make sound judgments we chased the market down and at its worst we were down three billion dollars Wow. over a period of six weeks so when you it say you, you chase the market down like in, in sorry to use gambling terminology but that would be doubling down basically right yeah and because uh, the, the, the thing is because uh, i mean i'm a very uh casual gambler yeah. but if i ever play red and black and i've tried that you make a loss so you put two chips in you lose two chips so you put four chips in you lose four so you put eight there comes a point where you're putting 32 chips on and you're like this strategy is not working yeah so it wasn't quite a geometric progression so it wasn't like doubling 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 it was just buying the dip so you buy a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more so each day it goes down you just buy a bit more it's not you're not doubling it it's sort of you know buy another t increase your position size by another 10 percent, for example but then there comes a point of mass desperation where like the market goes down loads and you think actually you don't think so what happens is that you go from being risk averse to being loss averse and desperate to fix the situation for the bank, you stop thinking about yourself. It's like, who cares about whether or not I lose my job? Actually, what's important is resolving this loss. And I'll do everything it takes to resolve this loss. But the problem is that, and, and, and a lot of academic work has since been done that shows that what happens when people are in these really high stress, high conflict, high competition environments where the work is truly demoralizing, what happens is that they become resource depleted. So Margaret Heffernan in her book, Willful Blindness, talks about every single example like Enron and Sockgen and UBS and BP Horizon disaster, where basically people lose the ability to think rationally because they're resource depleted. Like every, we've all got a certain bandwidth of emotional capacity to make right or wrong decisions. And when you become resource depleted, you stop being able to make rational decisions. And that's exactly what happened to us. You start making really irrational decisions where you're like, I'm certain it's going to bounce. And like all of us were doing it, right? So I would say to my supervisor, huh, what should I do? And he'd be like, well, you just hold it or buy some more. You know, we'd go to your European head of trading and you'd say, well, what should I, what should I do? And he'd be like, just, just hold it. Don't worry, it'll bounce. The market will come back. Okay, but when you're more than $2 billion down, mm -hmm. how does that feel? Uh, when you're in a fight... You're just in a fight. It's like throwing... I, I, I don't know, I suspect. You're just like throwing punches and trying not to get hit. Like just throwing. It's, just, it's just a flurry of activity. You're not really rationally going, I need to end this fight, otherwise someone might... It might end up with a knife or a gun. You don't think like that. It's You're just in a process. Then the moment comes where suddenly it's like someone pulls out a gun. And you're like, oh fuck, this has escalated. And that was the riots. Oh, my God.
kids were rioting in Hackney. And you're like, whoa, fuck. Social order and the performance of markets are perfectly linked. The sell-off that happened that summer was driven by the massive argument that was being had about increasing the U.S. debt ceiling so that they could borrow more money. But they were also driven by what was going on in Greece and the societal unrest that was coming off the back of the Greek bailout and the pressures that were being placed on Greek people. But also on this breakdown of societal order in the U.K. So there's a whole bunch of different factors that were driving the sell-off that summer. And for us, the clearest manifestation of that was the riots that summer in London. Yeah, the, the connection for us was really real, you know, because it was really close to home. I lived in Bethnal Green, Spitalfield. So getting home to my girlfriend's house, for example, you had to go through the riots. We'd been in this two-month-long fight that spring where a small group of us had been saying, look, we think the market's going to crash. We need to be prepared for it. Our job is to protect the bank because we're the biggest book and we need to get it right. And, you know, big to and fro between a small group of me, a couple of other traders and some macro analysts, and then the senior trading team, who were all like, you know, the market's going to go up. And I was, I was arguing, fighting, fighting, going like sending all these emails and really long like Bloomberg chats and like getting a whiteboard out and drawing it all out. And eventually my supervisor went to our head of trading who then went to the CEO of the bank who then came, the CEO of the bank came to the trading floor. To see you. And said to us, the market's going to be fine. It's going to bounce. You know, we've heard some stuff from Axel Weber at the ECB, European Central Bank. He's told us some stuff. The market's going to be okay. Just stay long, right? And So actually, in answer to my question, how did it feel? You're basically saying, okay, some days it felt really shitty, but there was still be- the adrenaline. There was still the pleasure of doing it. There was still the feeling that you were on top of it. The adrenaline's always there, but... There came a point where I had a conversation with my girlfriend and she said to me, what's really weird is that you should be really happy because you guys are doing really well. It's like April, May of 2011. We'd made like $135 million of profit that year. And she said to me, you should be really happy, but you're not. And I don't understand why. You're achieving all the goals. You know, you guys are doing really great. You're being put on a pedestal because I'd tell her all the stories and she'd be like, but you still don't seem happy. Is it because actually this is the wrong job for you? And what's weird is we went on holiday to Greece in June and during that holiday, I had to promise her that I would quit being a trader because otherwise she was going to leave me. So I committed. I was like, I just need to figure out A, what I'm going to do instead of this and B, when is the best time to leave? Then within weeks of making that decision, the loss process begins. So three days before I was arrested, my supervisor had just come back from what we'll call an extended holiday at the Burning Man Festival. And he'd been at the Burning Man and he'd basically been uncontactable. And so the rest of the desk had been like struggling to find a solution. And we decided that when he got back, we'd go to the pub and have a chat. We went to the uh, All Bar One round the corner from UBS. 
and we were sat in the pub and we kind of going around in circles and the question was what do we do we can either find a way to buy more time or we can put an end to this process now so in my head I was like this is the last thing I'm going to do in this bank so if you want to buy more time we can try but I'm out of bandwidth and I've promised Roshan right so we go around in circles for a bit and eventually I go you know what I'll take responsibility for it I'll get fired there might be some headlines in the newspaper or in the in the finance media but who gives a shit I'll get fired and I'll just move on and go do something else with my life and then you guys can stay on with the book and rebuild it after this failure it's a bit crazy to think that we were going to be allowed for anyone to stay on the book um, but that's what we thought would happen so that was a Monday and on Wednesday afternoon around lunchtime and I was like I'm going to send the email so I said to John right, let's go outside because I'm going to go send the email so he walked out with me and then he said what are, what are you going to write um, so we talked about what I'd put in the email and I was like don't worry I'll make sure it's isolated to me and make sure that I say that you guys didn't know about it and it's the best way to protect the desk and the bank and our managers and our support guys and I was like I'll see you when I see you and as I was walking away he called me back and he was like Quake I'm really sorry but you know we're going to have to disown you right and uh, <laughs> still makes me well up every time and I was like don't worry about it it's, it's going to be okay um, I'll be fine and um and I walked off and I sent the email and then I got a phone call like half an hour later can you come up to the seventh floor so I went up to the seventh floor and then there's this process what are you thinking in the elevator on the way to the seventh floor I'm like well I've got to make sure that I stick to the line that we've put in the email like that's all I'm thinking about it's like got to make sure <laughs> I've got to make sure that I stick to the line in the email because if I don't I will fail and what was the line in the email? The line in the email was that I take full responsibility for this loss. Nobody knew about it apart from me. And actually what I wrote in the email was I take full responsibility for the shitstorm that's about to ensue. Right? That's That was like literally the final line. And the and idea... Who was that sent to you? Your so, line manager? No. So it was sent to like the head of credit who's like, you know, this guy who's outside our bubble. Basically the head of our business and our global head of trading and the head of credit. So I go to the seventh floor and then there's like a stream of increasingly senior people come into the room. What's happened? I tell them the story. They go away. Another one comes. What's happened? I tell them the story. He goes away. And eventually a lawyer comes in and says, we think you need a lawyer. I was like, just to protect your interest. I'm like, okay, whatever. Have you got lawyers? No. We'll get you some lawyers. Okay. So then they get me some lawyers from Kingsley Napoli. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that Kingsley Napoli are the same lawyers as for Nick Leeson, 1994, Barings Bank. Rogue Trader. Rogue Trader. And obviously, I wasn't thinking, clearly, but they were creating a headline, right? Quaker Adaboli being supported by Kingsley Napoli, former lawyers for Rogue Trader, Nick Leeson. That's the headline, and it allows them to put my name and Rogue Trader in the same sentence. And I said to them, look, all I want is to make sure that no one else gets in trouble, right? I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to lose my job over this. 
whatever. Like, I'm relaxed. But what's important is that there's no need for everyone else to be in trouble. Again, very naive, because what obviously ensues is that UBS does an investigation, realizes who was involved, and eventually the regulator does an investigation and realizes what's, who was involved. And the regulator actually found that UBS was aware of the methods of trading, the booking system, that they created the environment and encouraged the behavior. These are the actual words of the regulator, which were only released after my trial. But on that day, it was like, all I want to do is make sure no one else gets in trouble. So I leave the senior people out of the story and just talk about the desk and its processes. And I go into a meeting with UBS's lawyers and basically they give me pizza. It's 11 o'clock at night. I eat some, I can't eat. What's the atmosphere like? It's really, it's really stressful, but they're trying to make me feel like I'm still part of the you're still on their team yeah yeah like you're helping us like we we need your help we you know we really appreciate your help you know that that kind of language right you must be hungry would you like some pizza what kind of pizza do you like and then this meeting ends and uh one of the guys says to me all right Quig, well thanks a lot for being so open for taking responsibility we just got to wrap some stuff up and then you can go home in about half an hour um, and then an hour passes. It's like half past midnight. Meanwhile, Roshan sending me messages going, when are you going to be home? I've made chicken. Da, da, da. And this guy comes in and he goes, um, I'm really sorry, but I know we told you you could go home, but we had to call the police. And then these two coppers turn up. Um, and what did you think when they came in? I was like, there's a sense of, actually a sense of betrayal. I mean, I didn't understand at the time. I was just like, okay, well, it's just another part of the process. But in hindsight, what was going through, the emotion that was going through was, fuck. And 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 then, and then there's this, the next three days, two days, where I'm in Bishopsgate Police Station and there's like absolute mayhem going on outside. The whole world reporters are outside this police station. And in, I'm on my own in this cell with like this thin blue mattress and no sheet on my own and I'm not allowed a piece of paper and you know you just what do you do with yourself and every now and then the lawyers would come in they'd get me out of the room I'd go to do a, a an interview with the police and the lawyers would say to me just do no comment right and I mean you're, you're sitting there you're a very affable young yeah. man you're answering all my questions very straightforwardly correct imagine for you to sit opposite it two was, police officers saying no comment like and they would head. they would ask me a question they'd be like we're trying to help you like who like other people must have known other people must have been involved and they're like asking me these questions mm. and each time they would ask me a certain question my eyes would just like poof, full of tears like start crying mm. but I'd be like under the advice of my lawyers I would like to go no comment and they'd say to me things like, you know, like if you keep saying no comment, like at some stage in your trial or whatever, if you go, if this goes to trial, it'll go against you. Like someone will use it against you. And I'm thinking to myself, surely not. Like as clear as night and day during my trial, you went no comment, Adaboli. You know, you must have been having something to hide. Don't try and pretend like you're being all open and honest now you went no comment when you had a chance to speak then two days later i get bungled in the back of a police car to get past the media 
like literally in the boot with a blanket over the top of me and they take me to the city of london magistrates court put me into the court cells i get brought out to the world in the courtroom you know this is serious by this point right, by now you're like okay do you like, know how serious i mean you're saying you like, photographers but did you know you were on the front page of all the papers like so i knew i, I only knew i was on the front page of the papers because when the lawyers came that like one of the first things they said which is a bit callous actually was well at least you're number one on global news as if like <laughs> whoa yeah it's like and of course the first thing they i thought when they said that was oh my god my mom and dad mm. right because they're not in the UK they're in Ghana and they don't know what's going on and no one's will no one will have called them they won't know, they will have the first time they'll have seen this would have been on BBC World Service mm. so yeah so it wasn't it was just super fucking emotional like coming out into the magistrate's course like a big glass box it's a pretty small courtroom with like I don't know five six seven judges i don't know how many magistrates were on that panel it's a big long desk with loads of judges and then in this packed room and all my friends were in the back and it's the first time i'd seen them as soon as i saw them it's just like poof, all this emotion i can still feel it now it's just really like strong like it's really tough and when you when you say all your friends your friends from the banking floor no like your there were friends. there were some of my colleagues there um, actually but my uni friends my school friends you know um, my sister um, that obviously matters a lot to you it was just really hard because you could tell that they were so scared and I think it's really hard when you're going through this process and you know you know that like because I was going through it I'm like, there's a sense of control right like whatever happens it's not like I'm going to die it's going to be okay um, but they've got no control and you're like you want to like embrace them and say it's going to be okay but you're like a room away from them with, in this glass box and you can't touch them you can't you know had you been advised really at this tough. point that if it went to trial what kind of sentence you'd be looking at no that doesn't come till way later what then happens is that I spend nine months in Wandsworth jail which is the most eye-opening thing I've ever experienced seen some horrible things um, and eventually I start to wake up I start to remember I start to realize that I was just part of a system a process and I start to remember that I was never driven by the desire for monetary gain I was never I was always doing everything I could for the bank and yes there was a negative outcome but I didn't even want to do these trades in the first place. Like I, I thought the market was going to crash. And so, so then it's like, you start to wake up and you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that conversation. And that's that email and this and that and this. And that I said to my lawyers, I want to plead not guilty actually. And they're like, you can't plead not guilty and pretended to be the prosecutor and just blasted me. I but, mean, you must have known on some level, I mean, you can plead not guilty, but yeah. you, you yourself, you've quoted the email. I take full responsibility Correct. for the shitstorm that's about to go down. Correct. And so what then happens is I go, yes, there's a high, high chance that I get found guilty, but actually this is not about guilty or not guilty anymore. It took me a while to realize this, but basically in the UK, the only way you get disclosure of evidence is if you plead not guilty. And if I was going to do what I'm doing today, then... 
you know, using the lesson to teach other people and to teach institutions and to try and drive for change in the way our systems work, then I needed that evidence in order to be able to tell you this story I'm telling you now. Because mm. otherwise, everyone would just say, well, you would say that because none of it would be public knowledge already. But everything I'm telling you now has already been told in, in the court mm. through that disclosure process. So the only way I could tell the story properly with evidence was to plead not guilty knowing that I would probably get a higher sentence for doing that but it was the only way like otherwise yeah fine I might have got a four year sentence or maybe a three year sentence for plea I don't know but the pain the suffering all of that would be for nothing because you can't do anything with it and you got a seven year sentence I got a seven year sentence we're the same age actually yeah and so I'm thinking back to when I was the age you were when that happened to you so when you were 32 yeah yeah you're sort of old enough to know that three and a half years is going to go quickly. Yeah. But you're also not young enough to just throw away three and a half years because yeah. that's three and a half years of the most important years of your life in some ways. Absolutely right. It's a, it's a really important point. And what actually you focus on is how do I protect my relationships? By the time I was convicted I'd already served a year in prison on remand and all the bits and bobs so it was like I've just got to get through two and a half years and I know two and a half years can go really fast I've just got to make sure I make the most of this time so what ends up happening is you become part of a new community it's your prison community and eventually you build trust in that environment you find a sense of purpose so I became chairman of the prison council equality orderly I started working in the kitchen, which actually, if you've been to prison, you'll learn that being in the kitchen means that you've got a real lever on community happiness. So food is the one thing that prisoners have got choice over. So if you can bring joy to their lives by improving their food, then you can really change the environment. And as a white-collar criminal, you should be in an open prison pretty much straight away, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're not a threat much. to anyone's physical safety. You're not a safety. threat to anyone, you know. It's, they, they, sh they should just move you pretty much immediately. But the problem was, because I'm a foreign national, you know, because I never got round to getting a British passport, despite being here for 25 years, and, and more importantly, in 2012, we were bringing in laws about immigration, you know, go-home buses and the hostile environment. And I'm like the opposite of Mo Farah. Like, I'm the bad immigrant, you know? It was like, you've got to get him out. And the way you get me out, because of the fact that I'm British, in everything, bar having a passport, meant that in order to get me out, you have to break my relationships. So how do you break someone's relationships? Well, you stick them in an environment where they can't see people, where they're diminished. If you put me in an open prison, you'd have to let me go out to work. You'd have to let me go home every weekend or every four weeks for five days, mm. which would mean that I'd have a relationship with my partner and life would be relatively normal and you can maintain some kind of normalcy around the process. Um, but by putting me in Maidstone, they crushed the relationships and made it really super hard. And didn't you end up in an immigration center? Yeah, so it wasn't an immigration center. It was a foreign national jail. So you, the UK is the only European country that has a special prisons for foreign nationals. Um, they were developed in 2011, 2012. And the idea is part of this hostile environment policy, make life really shitty 
so that when it comes time and you serve the deportation order, they literally put themselves on a plane. That's the idea. But for someone like me, where this is my home and like I see myself as as my identity is British, right? I was just like, well, you can do what you like, but I'm never going to accept that I deserve to be deported. It doesn't matter what I've done wrong. I'm not a threat to anyone. I'm trying to do good things with the experience. And I, I set off on this journey before I was convicted. So therefore, I'm just not going to accept that you're going to deport me. So then I had to fight against that process and fight. And I'm still fighting today. And you talked about how important it was for you to maintain relationships. The ones that are closest to you, how did that go? You mentioned your girlfriend being Yeah, girlfriend. so, I mean, I've lost some people in the fire, um, which is really sad. Because, you know, we tried really hard to maintain those relationships. My ex-girlfriend is one of them. A few of my colleagues from work are the others. But on balance, actually, all my other relationships have got infinitely stronger. And that's the crazy thing about this. I now have a stronger relationship with my friends and family than I had before all of this happened. Why? Because the bank and the work was causing me to be unable to fulfill those relationships. And so now I'm in a position where I understand the value of the relationships and how magical it is to be how magical it is to be able to to honor them. And it's actually really nice to like at at the age I was to learn how powerful human relationships are. You know, when I speak now to students or chief executives or regulators or politicians, who it doesn't matter who it is, I always say to them, you need to realize how important it is that we reprioritize our shared humanity. Because if we don't, we have nothing. Kwaku Adaboli. You can find out more about him and the work he does now at kwakuadaboli.com. I'll link to that on our website. Uh, Thanks as well to Manfan Stephen for hooking us up. And if you're curious about the latest court decision regarding Kwaku's proposed deportation, uh, it's that his appeal to remain in the UK has been adjourned for the foreseeable future, whilst claims are investigated that the Home Office mishandled his case. Uh, If you would like to lend your voice to the roughly 60,000 people who think he should be allowed to remain in the UK, regardless, uh, you can still sign the petition, and I've linked to that on our website as well. Uh, Right, time for something completely different. Alex Fox, she's up next after this. Modern mans, or indeed modern men. You're compassionate, empathetic types. You're adventurous and curious about the world. You use a decent facial moisturiser. You care about antioxidants. And you acknowledge why the price of Bitcoin keeps fluctuating. But you know what? You don't have to be shy about the fact that you're passionate about football. Especially if you support someone like Leeds or Southend or any of the other 72 clubs who aren't in the Premier League and aren't backed by Petro billionaires. My name's Ian McIntosh and every week you can join me for the Totally Football League show where we tell the stories of the teams and the fans outside of the top division. There are reports from games up and down the country, expert guests, club histories, anthemic music. What more could you want? There's a new episode every Tuesday, so have a listen for yourself. Search for the Totally Football League show wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, I don't know about you, but it's been seven weeks since I've had sex chat. So I'm here to do it with Alex Fox. It's the Foxhole. Hello, Alex. Hello, my glorious Ollie. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. More to the point, how has your uh, Winterval been? Actually, everything is more tickety-boo than a ghost's wristwatch. I've had a really great time. I've been up and down to so many things. Uh, But recently, I have been thinking about how people can have more enlightened sex, by which I mean why they should keep the lights on while they're getting jiggy. This, I feel, is something that uh, every couple has to contend with at some point, isn't it? The the frank discussion about if one of you prefers, well, either lights on or lights off. Well, there's been a study that's been carried out by a new prepayment energy supplier called Boost that found that actually 7 in 10 British people prefer, most times, to keep the lights completely off and make love in pitch darkness. Uh, the reasons that they gave for turning the lights out were body consciousness. They just felt more embarrassed. Uh, if they could be seen that might be because they they have a few hang-ups about their own shape their own form I think for some people as well they just fear that maybe they look like they're like some kind of rictus the scream-esque facial expression when they're coming Um, but I do wonder whether for a lot of people it's just force of habit they've got into a routine of turning the lights out before they make love and so it doesn't they don't question whether they should switch that up when in fact turning the lights on can be a very very simple and uh, minimal cost outlay way of making sex more exciting there are tons of reasons to keep the lights on for a start you can actually see what you're doing as we regularly chat about in the foxhole lots of people need quite delicate precise precision touches in very specific places in order to maximize their pleasure and their potential to orgasm but also on a much more practical level the karma sutra suits well-lit bedrooms better than it does the darkness. The number of people I've heard have been accidentally knocked in the nose whilst knocking boots. I heard a great story recently as well about someone who um, was groping for a pump-action bottle of lube in the middle of the night. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, accidentally went for hand sanitizer and slapped that on their foof. We're back, everyone. Okay, uh, (laughs) we're going to move on to our first listener question of the series in just a moment, but first let us thank our sponsors of The Foxhole, mycondom.com. Listeners who are new to modern man should know that mycondom.com stock all sorts of different condoms some of which are usually quite hard to get hold of in the UK as well as lubes sex toys saucy paraphernalia all of which are superb value including sachets of lube called Passante Silky TLC mm-hmm. for when you do want to go chasing waterfalls and get beautifully <laughs> moist uh, this is a hybrid lube which means it's part silicone based part water based the silicone keeps it lasting for a really long time so it stays slippery and skiddy in all the best ways sure but i don't want water... no scrubs <laughs> yeah. well the water-based part actually does mean that you don't have to scrub as hard to get it out of your bed linen afterwards and it keeps it feeling natural Great. so literally the best of both worlds i don't know any other tlc songs to riff on uh here's the question it's from kyle who says 
I am HIV positive and my partner is not. My viral load is currently undetectable and so I pose no risk to my partner in terms of passing on HIV. I regularly have my viral load checked but sometimes it can increase to detectable levels and there is a very minor risk to my partner were we to have sexual contact. We normally don't until my viral load is again undetectable. So my question, Alex, is do you have any advice or tips to keep our sex life interesting during the weeks where I am detectable. We currently veer towards mutual masturbation and this seems impersonal and boring for myself and for him compared to our normally busy sex life. Well, what a superb question to open our new season on because there was tons here that everyone can learn, no matter your gender, no matter your sexual persuasion, no matter your HIV status. Well, let's kick off by explaining viral loads and what it means to be undetectable. Yeah. I'm, yeah, a, a lot of people haven't heard these terms before, I don't no, think. No, I haven't. Okay, so HIV these days, in the UK at least, is usually treated using antiretroviral medicines or ART. Spectacularly, these medicines work very, very very well. Sometimes people only need to take one or two pills every day. They do have some side effects. They can give you quite a nasty upset tummy, especially at first. So some people take them with antiemetics to stop themselves being sick. But on the whole, these medicines are extremely effective, very, very efficient. And the goal of them is to make people's viral load undetectable. When copies of HIV can't be detected by standard tests in the blood, then that person is said to have an undetectable viral load. Okay, but what does that mean? You've still got HIV, right? You have still got HIV. Uh, In the UK, an undetectable level of that means you've only got 20 copies of the HIV virus, or roughly 20 copies, per millilitre of blood. So a very, very low amount of the virus. They've still got the virus in their system, but because it is at such low levels, recent studies have showed that it is pretty much impossible for that person to pass the virus on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, obviously, pretty much impossible is still not odds you want to contend with, wear a condom, but that's amazing, isn't it? I thought if you had HIV, basically, that meant if you had sex with someone, there's always a good chance of passing it on. I would usually not argue with you saying always best to play safe, use a condom. But so far, studies have shown that it is actually safe if you are on effective, regular treatment and taking that treatment very carefully, adhering to your treatment schedule, you cannot pass on the HIV virus, even if you have unprotected sex. Uh, But Kyle says here that sometimes he is detectable. Very occasionally, people who are HIV positive might have what's called a viral load blip. This is when their uh, viral load, their cell count does just just peak a little bit above what is optimally desirable. Sometimes it might just be to do with different tests that are run, run in the lab, giving slightly different results. Sometimes it might be that they've missed one of their pills, and you, even if you miss pills for one or two days, then that can, that can quite drastically affect your, your viral load sometimes. If they've had the flu or they've been ill, if they've taken any other drugs, maybe recreational or prescription, then th- there can be drug interactions. There are all sorts of reasons why your viral load might change, so it's important to keep an eye on it and if it does reach a level where it's detectable then you'll want to use additional protection or change your sexual habits for that time just to make sure that your partner is 
maximally safe. And so in that instance, Kyle is uh, abstaining from penetrative sex at all. So what can he do with his partner that isn't just mutual masturbation? He seems to be bored of that. There are many people who are quite happy with that. <laughs> but if, if he wants more, what can we suggest? Well, this is where, excuse the phrase, but toys really come into their own. Okay. I've recently been sent a fantastic box of uh, prostate massages by a company called Aneros. It looks like someone's been on a prehistoric dig and come up with some dinosaur bones. They sort of look like weird fossils or something. But they're plastic probes that are designed for use primarily on a male body and you lube them up and relax yourself and pop them up your anal passage they're designed specifically to uh, massage or nudge or rub on the prostate which can induce a spectacular orgasm for the majority of men now so we men are always told and yet i mean i don't have the statistics on this i imagine possibly even the majority but certainly a lot of people just have never tried that because they don't want stuff up their bum lots of people are a bit anti-bumming yes so is this perhaps a gentle introduction to that because the classic thing is get your partner to lube up their finger and do it gently we've talked about that on the show or do it yourself in the shower i think with i do i think with anything anal you're bound to feel more confident and more comfortable if you've already investigated the the area yourself and so you know what to expect you know what the sensation might be like so is this a serious before you do it with a pal. But is this for serious bummers then? The, the <laughs> well, they're quite slim, but they are quite long. So they're probably for people who are uh, already <laughs> serious bummers. Yeah. Who, who are not new to the bum fun rodeo. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, and because Kyle has already said that he's having mm. anal sex with his partner, then I presume that they have both uh, taken a trip down the rabbit hole, yes. so to speak. Okay, what else? If you're not interested in poking anything up your log flume, then Mm. there's also loads of toys for penises. There's tons of them out there, and not all of them look like genitalia. I think a lot of people, when they think about male masturbator devices, they think of the ones that look like vaginas, or they think think of the ones that look like silicone asses in pots. Uh, Lots of them don't look like that. They're more like just... They're just tubes, aren't they? Yeah, they're just tubes. They're just silicone tubes with... um, They might have ribs on or dots. Lube them up slip them on and use them either to wank yourself or wank somebody else. Which I imagine actually in a relationship is actually easier because there's that element then of competition, isn't there? You know, this this bum or this fake vagina that you're fucking is in competition with my one. Whereas if it is a sort of faceless tube, there is that feeling of, I am doing this to you, look at me but you're sticking your wang in something soft and slippery and and exciting. A lot of people find toys that don't resemble genitals Mm. a lot more comfortable to use in a coupled situation. Yeah, because it doesn't look like there's been a serial killer lop a part of somebody's body off and that you're sticking yourself into it. And if you don't want to bring a toy into the bedroom, what else? Well, you could try what's called intercrural penetration, a.k.a. thigh-fucking. This is when you you lube your partner's thighs up, you get them to close their legs really tightly. Oh, yes, you've talked about this before. And you have sex with their thighs. You have sex with their thighs. Okay. If you're someone who's into anal sex, then you could essentially uh, mock that. Yeah, Yeah, right, but using the thighs instead. And there's no penetration. You could up the intensity of that as well by working in some bondage. So you could perhaps tie your partner's legs together, consensually, of course. It did strike me that Kyle and his partner 
might have quite a negative association with these times when his viral load is detectable. Mm. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit more of a concerning moment for them, but also sexually, if it's on their mind that they're having to compromise during this time, then that's going to add to the sense of potential melancholy or dissatisfaction or just this time being a bit of a downer. So one thing that they might want to look into, and indeed I'd, I would recommend this for all couples, Make a list of interesting non-penetrative things that you'd like to try and leave that especially for that moment. Yes. So it turns it into something to look forward to. Yeah. It's the time for you to experiment together. It's the time that you order that toy and keep it in the bedroom drawer waiting for that special moment. Mm. Or maybe sign up for a workshop if you are interested in something like bondage or you want to learn a new sexual skill, maybe tantra, something like that. Save this time for the time when you work on that particular skill together. Alex, as ever, an eye-opener, a thigh-opener. If you have a question of sex for a future episode to put to Alex Fox, what do you have to do with it, consensually? <laughs> you need to scurry and hurry over to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click on Feedback. You can remain entirely anonymous. You don't have to give us your name, but thank you, Kyle, for saying hello. Yeah, and if anyone does go into rural, let us know how it was for you. I'm curious. Um, the thigh's the limit. <laughs> thanks again to mycondom.com for sponsoring uh, today's edition of The Foxhole. And remember... You can get 15% off your whole order, which is already very good value, by using the code FOXHOLE. F-O-X-H-O-L-E. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Charlie, who says, Ollie, I've been a listener from the beginning, so I thought it was about time I bought you and the team a beer in appreciation for your informative and joyous content. Thank you, Charlie. Cheers. He says, I always look forward to your podcast during my long shifts working offshore on oil rigs. Could I please be considered for the esteemed position of Manbassador for the UK Continental Shelf? <laughs> Charlie, you are the first to claim the position. It is yours. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to buy us a beer or write us a review or send us some feedback, all the details are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Our theme is by Django Django, thanks to them, and our record of the week is this, by Lucy Rose. It's called Strangest of Ways, and it's out now on Communion Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Just a
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.